Hi, and welcome to Fly on the Wall. I'm Aida. I'm Adam. And this week, we have Kevin Blackstone joining us here on the pod. But first, don't forget to follow us on our social media. We're on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Fly on the Wall Pod. And if you want to ask us any questions, you can email us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com. Kevin Blackstone is a journalist, panelist on ESPN's Around the Horn, visiting professor at the University of Maryland, and a contributor to the Washington Post. He's here today for an event titled Free Speech in Sports, sponsored by Georgetown University's Free Speech Project. We're so lucky to have Mr. Blackstone on the podcast today. Mr. Blackstone, you started mm-hmm. your career uh, covering political and economic news in Boston, Chicago, and Dallas. Um, mm-hmm. How was your transition to reporting on sports, and how do you think your background as a politics reporter and business reporter helped inform your first perspective on sports? Sure. Um, well, I always tell people that if you're, you know, journalism is journalism, right? It doesn't matter what you cover, you still have to ask the same questions, who, what, when, why, where, how, um, and get good answers to those and uh, construct a good story and have a good knowledge of what it is you're, you're, you're covering. Um, so the switch from, and I, I never really did pure politics, but I did do some stories that wound up in the political bin. Um, uh, so when I did switch over to sports, um, you know, it was, a, it was an easy transition in the sense that I, I'm a journalist and I know what questions are asked to construct a story. And also I'm a sports fan. So, um, I know the games that I like to watch. I didn't particularly know the nuances. Um, but, uh, you know, I got up to speed on that, um, as quickly as possible. And, you know, I think the one thing that, coming from a uh, news economic background um, getting into sports brings you is maybe a different perspective on what it is you're covering. Um, you, you you may not cover every event just looking at the outcome. Right. Um, you may wind up fascinated by something that impacts the outcome. Um, you may get interested in um, the financial dynamics of, of sport, the racial dynamics of sport. And for me, that certainly was, uh, was the case. So we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, free speech and the work that you've done kind of in that area. But before that, I think it's important that we address like perspectives, as you said. So mm-hmm. can you tell us a little bit about social justice and how those ideas fit into your work, and perhaps the differing perspectives on those ideas. Sure. Well, um, first of all, I was drawn to journalism um, because of the power of journalism. Um, uh, and, um, you know, when I think about journalism, I think about the things it can do to change people's lives. I think about the things it can do to redress issues. Um, my first job, real job in journalism, was working at a place called the Chicago Reporter, which still exists to this day. And the Chicago Reporter is a news outlet in the city of Chicago that covers racial and social issues in and around Chicago. Um, And so uh, coming from that background, um, I've always brought that interest to everything I've written about, including when I was covering um, business. Um, uh, I would look for issues of import to the black community. Um, 
and so when I go to sports, um, I bring that same uh, that same interest. In fact, the very first sports column that I ever wrote um, was on the Denver Nuggets, who had just been purchased by um, a group involving two um, black owners, um, and resulted fairly quickly in the firing of the coach. And the coach then filed a uh, discrimination lawsuit against these black owners, um, saying that the reason they fired him was because they were black and he was white. Um, And that immediately caught my eye and became my first discussion point with the public or the public I had in Dallas, Texas at the time um, in sports. So, um, and obviously I stood with the owner's right to do what they wanted to with their team and found great irony in a white coach, a white and white coaches at the time dominated the NBA, which was still made up mostly of black players, um, uh, claiming that he was discriminated against. Um, and so I've always brought, brought that kind of, I think, perspective. That's the lens through which I see sports. Right, and this goes um, sort of the fact that management typically tends to be white in a lot of these sports. Absolutely. Majority white, and um, as you mentioned in your discussion earlier, a lot of the labor tends to be more uh, people of color. Right. Um, what do you think the relationship is between the freedom to protest among people of color who are typically the players versus mm-hmm. to um, speak out if you're more of a... I mean, a power position like Daryl Morey of the Houston Rockets was. Right. Well, I think it's, uh, I think it has to do with control. Um, you know, uh, labor is often controlled by management, and that's certainly the case in sports. And management comes up with the, the rules, and labor is expected to follow those rules. And um, one of those rules is not to speak out um, on things that have that are seen as having nothing to do with the sport that you play Um, and certainly not to be critical of those for whom you play Um, and that's been ingrained for um, a very long time but you know what Um, black athletes have been in the forefront they've been in the vanguard of speaking out in sports for uh, almost as long as they've been a part of it and so when you see Colin Kaepernick, uh, you know, he is really part, um, he's part of a lineage. And he understands the importance of sports to bring attention to an issue that otherwise might be overlooked. Um, and in this particular case, he had had enough of police lethality against unarmed black men that seemed to be going unchecked um, by the criminal and justice system. Absolutely. Um, when you have, in those sorts of issues, and you have, you know, once people in positions of power, like the president, political leaders, start to sure. condemn those sorts of acts, like, as you know, President Trump commented on Colin Kaepernick, he also right. commented on when Steph Curry and the Warriors chose not to come to the White House. Um what sorts of ripple ripple effects of people in not just positions of power in sports, but positions of power in politics, do you see go through sports after they speak out about it? You mean to go through sports and um, 
to use sports as a as a means of talking about an issue or that and also is there a, sort of a, a chilling effect when you have the president of the United States you know use a pretty explicit right. term to refer to Colin Kaepernick well it wasn't it, it wasn't chilling in the in the manner that um, it squashed discussion in fact it backfired right because after President Trump made those comments at a rally in Alabama I think for the first time you had a mass protest of sorts in the NFL. It was the one weekend where um, tens of football players, I think the count was up to 200, um, all did something demonstrative um, to counteract uh, what, what the president said. So, yeah, that wasn't necessarily a chilling effect. That was a warming effect. Um, right. um, although the downside... Is probably that the players were reacting to something the president had said about them and by extension about their mothers um, as opposed to which is something very personal as opposed to the broader issue of police lethality which is the reason that Colin Kaepernick dropped to a knee during the playing of the national anthem in the first place. Right. And so to what extent do you think employers have the right um, to stifle or control free speech of their employees, especially when their employees are given such a large platform the way athletes are? Within sports? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, once again, I think it goes back to control, and I think it goes back to the whole, um, the whole idea of team. Um, and, you know, I, I always think it's interesting nowadays that almost every team, be it college or pro, employs psychologists um, because psychology is as big a part of sports nowadays as um, athletic ability. Um, uh, and minds get trained and athletes get trained to stay in a particular lane. And that lane does not necessarily include um, speaking out on issues that may impact their community. Um, it's only speaking out on issues that may impact the team, uh, may hurt their chances at a championship, um, may detract, uh, fans from supporting them, um, that kind of thing. Uh, and you know, even when you, even if you think about it, particularly when you talk about revenue generating sports in college, you know, basketball and, um, and football, men's basketball and football for the most part. Um, think about the opportunities that college athletes in those sports have to be integrated in the college experience the same as you do, right? Mm-hmm. Um, how often are they involved or encouraged to be involved in college government, in... Um, student organizations on campus, um, in political events on campus. Uh, And given that they probably are not encouraged to do so, how many of them think to do so on their own? Um, When most of their time, uh, especially when their sport is in season, is spent with their team, right? Spent with their coaches, with their fellow players. So... You know, athletes are deconditioned to being involved in these sorts of issues where the rest of you may be conditioned to do exactly the opposite. 
Right, and sort of going on that and the issues of control and even conditioning in politics, I mentioned this sort of before a little bit, but for our listeners who might not have as much background, um, mm-hmm. in the past month, Houston Rockets in the NBA, um, the general manager, Darryl Morey, he started an, inter- an international uproar when he spoke out um, in favor of the Hong Kong protesters. Right. Um, and many socially just, justice-oriented orient, figures in the NBA, including LeBron James, uh, Warriors coach Steve Kerr, mm-hmm. Spurs coach Greg Popovich, who have spoken out on a lot of domestic issues. Right. They sort of punted when they were given questions about this international issue. Um, is it all right in your eyes for athletes to talk about domestic issues and then not necessarily have such strong opinions on international issues? And what are your, just what are your thoughts on the entire controversy? Well, it's, it's okay if they're not knowledgeable about it. Um, but they had a chance to be knowledgeable about it. They had a chance to learn this. This wasn't, uh, this wasn't something that was not a daily part of the news. This is something been going on since the summer. Um, and if you're going to stand for, uh, if you're going to stand for uh, human rights in a domestic sense in the United States, then it's kind of disingenuous for you not to recognize um, that in the situation in Hong Kong with China taking over, um, that you should have the same sensitivity towards the protesters in Hong Kong who feel as if um, the rights that they that they had before being handed back to Beijing um, were about to be trampled upon. Right. Um, so you open yourself up for uh, some very uh, real criticism. Um, and that's what Greg Popovich and Steve Kerr and LeBron James got in their responses. Um, their responses were... Um, one, not adequate, um, and two, very surprising, uh, uh, because they have come off heretofore as people who would be understanding and sensitive to this particular, this particular issue. So you ask yourself, why? Like, how can this happen? And the only explanation seems to be the financial, uh, the financial hopes of the NBA, <clears throat> To China, because um, I don't think anyone, I may be wrong, maybe they have, but I don't recall anyone speaking extensively about the protesters in Hong Kong. And have you had the chance to perhaps have conversations with athletes about this? I think a lot of our conversation has surrounded, you know, talking to people who are more in right positions. So. Yeah, unfortunately, I have not, um, I'm not around locker rooms and clubhouses like I used to be, and so I have not had the... Uh, I've not had the opportunity to talk to um, players about this, um, but now that the NBA season started, um, I'm sure I'll be over at a Wizards game or two, where if I get a chance, um, I may well go down and and chat to somebody if they want to they want to talk about this issue because I think it's um, you know I think it's important because it showed you know it demonstrated a very real um, inconsistency, right and. You know, when it comes to social justice, when it comes to this issue, you need to be you need to be consistent, right? I mean, you know, those you know, those could be black lives under an authoritarian authoritarian government, and that was the, that's another thing that kind of worried me. Um, I think uh, you know, I think LeBron James 
needed to know that we need to understand that China has is is increasing its its financial stake in sub-Saharan Africa, um, and he's a person that has international business. And so, what does that mean if an authoritarian authoritarian government um, that is cracking down on Hong Kong uh, out of business interests wants to do the same in nations in sub-Saharan Africa that it is now involved in? You know, what what's the impact on the people uh, under those governments? So there's a there's a lot to this to be um, considered that. Um, I'm sad that they didn't appear to do. Yeah, for sure. And you kind of talked about international relations, so let's talk about that a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, how do physical borders, or perhaps borders that you know you draw on a map, how does that translate in terms of social justice issues on the media where you don't really have those borders? And like just talking about Hong Kong, like to what extent should um, athletes in the U.S. be concerned with issues of Foreign relations. Well, they, they they should they should be involved. I mean, first of all, um, I mean the NBA is a perfect NBA is a perfect example. It's an international business now, right? I mean they're doing business in Africa, they're doing business in China, they're doing business in Europe. It's an international business. If you're a pro basketball player, um, chances are um, you will be um, overseas with your team, your NBA team, at some point in your career, uh, playing a game, right? Um, and if you're a borderline NBA player, guess what? Where else do you go to make a living? You could be in the um, G League, which is the minor league, but you could also be in any number of countries that uh, have professional have professional teams. Um, so people need to be they need to be um, uh, I think mindful of that. And and this may be more for baseball than for for basketball, though it's it's true in basketball too. Um, absolutely, it's absolutely true in basketball. Um, I often think that that black athletes have too narrow an understanding of who they are, and don't understand that you know the only difference between them uh, and I'm talking about African American athletes. The only t- difference between them. And maybe players from Senegal or Cameroon, um, or in baseball, certainly players from Puerto Rico, Venezuela, um, uh, Dominican Republic, Dominican Republic yeah. especially, mm-hmm. um, is really where their ancestors got dropped in the transatlantic slave trade, right? Right. I mean, the island of Hispaniola was the first stop in the transatlantic slave trade, which is divided between Haiti and the Dominican. And uh, so, you know, I wish there was a, a greater uh, Pan-African understanding um, among black athletes than there is today. Uh, and that requires them having an understanding of their place and self beyond the borders of the United States. Absolutely. And one other thing, you mentioned this at the beginning, and just to tie everything together, mm-hmm. um, the, the state of journalism and what sorts of things you cover versus what sorts of things I, uh, might, the public might be interested in. For example, um, as you noted in our discussion earlier, no one realized Colin Kaepernick wasn't standing up for the national anthem until an um, NFL TV reporter um, right. picked that up. So what role does the media sort of have in amplifying or stifling 
the voices of athletes who might be speaking out and protesting politics? Sure, I think today it's a lot better than it's ever been. Um, the fact that Steve Weiss, who happens to be a black reporter, um, veteran NFL reporter, um, picked up on that and asked questions about it and got some salient answers from it at the, um, the time from Colin Kaepernick, um, I think spoke volumes. Um, and a lot of people wound up, uh, wound up obviously writing about it, and we're still writing about it today. And there are even there are media scholars who are studying um, the coverage that we gave to this particular um, this particular issue. So, um, you know, our role is to report it, um, to clarify it, and not to confuse it. Unfortunately, in the Colin Kaepernick situation, we in the media confused a lot of what was going on. Um, still to this day, I. I bristle when I hear or read the phrase anthem protests because it never existed. The reason Colin Kaepernick protested had to do with police lethality. Um, he just happened to do it while the national anthem was playing. Uh, he did not protest the anthem. Right. Um, and so... That's a result of poor reporting on our part. Um, uh, and we need not confuse issues. We should clarify issues. And in that, and in that case, a lot of people did a poor job and uh, presented an issue that was, um, uh, presented the issue in a confusing way. Absolutely. Um, Mr. Blackstone, thank you so much for your time. Before you go, mm -hmm. I find that while we like to do something that we call the lightning round. Sure. We ask you a couple more fun questions okay. and you give us some quick responses so um, for me first as someone who grew up watching you on ESPN's Around the Horn um, I'm wondering um, who is your favorite fellow co-panelist to spar with on the show uh, that would be all of them oh didn't I punt that I can't I, I can't pick out one or the I can't pick out one or the other it is, a, it is an amazing show that has lasted this long we all have a good time sometimes when we're together we hang out um, uh uh, in fact, today, Tony Reale was actually in town for an event this evening, and I didn't know he was here, and so he came down, and, you know, we embraced, hey, how you doing? I mean, not that we don't talk via text or email or conference call during the week, but face-to-face, uh, -face, that, that's nice. So, yeah, I, I honestly cannot say that I have, um, I have one who uh, uh, <laughs> I like to spar with more than the other. A very political answer. Yes, yes, exactly. On a political podcast, yes. Yeah. Um, next question. Really, really hard question here. You're at a sporting event. What's your go-to snack? Uh, beverage would be beer. Um, go-to snack, um, I'd probably have to say chicken fingers. Mm. Yeah, although although I, am a, I, I must say I have a um, uh, partial season package to the Nets. And uh, one thing I really like there is Hank's Oyster Bar, and there's another place oh. that has a lobster roll. Oh wow! Um, so I yeah, and then there's another there's another place that has like uh, what do they call themselves street food? So they have like skewers, mm. um, vegetable skewers that are really good. So but but there's I got some it. Good snacks. Yeah, there's some good they're good good <laughs> snacks. They they do they do well. Yeah. And our last question is, in over two decades of being a sport, sports journalist, what's been the most memorable event you've ever covered? 
Um, I would say the uh, the World Cup in South Africa. Because when I saw that awarded, I like circled it. I was like, I got to go yeah. to this. I mean, this is first time, who knows, maybe the last time and just the, the history of South Africa. I was like, I got to go. And uh, uh, that was that was absolutely tremendous. And I even spent like a day on Robben Island where where all the um, where all the uh, uh, ANC freedom fighters have been locked up, including Mandela. Um, uh, had a chance to you know see his cell and see out the window. With, he probably witnessed for most of his twenty seven years locked up there in solitary confinement. Um, it was pretty. It was pretty moving. So I would say I, I would definitely say the twenty ten. Um, 2010 World Cup in South Africa. These have been some amazing stories. And well, thank you. It has been such a great time talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us on the pod. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you to Kevin Blackstone for joining us on the podcast today. And thank you to the Georgetown University Free Speech Project. The nonpartisan and independent Free Speech Project at Georgetown was established to assess the condition of free speech in America today, in higher education, in civil society, and in the world of state and local government. And before you go, don't forget to follow us on social media at Fly on the Wall Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And we know it's spooky season, but don't be afraid to email us at flyonthewallpodcast at gmail.com if you have any questions. Thank you.